Second Peter, book of Second Peter, if you would turn there with me in your Bible. Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one. I don't know what you have hanging on the walls of your home, but most people, they usually put up some sort of decor, right? Maybe you're really minimalistic, and so you just like the painted sheetrock. That's fine, too. Or maybe you're in transition and, uh, or just moved, <clears throat> say, two years ago and still haven't had time to get this, anything on the walls, like maybe some of the rooms in our house. But there is one thing that I made sure to put up in my office. And, and it's a portrait, and it's a portrait of someone who I love and I adore. It's a portrait of my wife in her wedding dress. And to me, that's really important to have on the wall there. And in, in fact, of, of, of all the places that are, that are, you know, I have wall space and I have pictures of, there, there are a lot of pictures. I have some pictures of like Banff National Park up in Canada, the Canadian Rockies, Glacier-fed lakes, absolutely beautiful. Those pictures are still in the closet. We haven't found a place in our house yet. Uh, I have a picture, a, port, or a, a picture that I really like that is just cowboy boots. You say, Pastor Phil, you don't wear cowboy boots. I do sometimes, but I like pictures of them, right? So I have this picture, and I think the caption under it, under it you know, if only they could talk. In other words, these boots, they have a story, right? They've been places. They're, they're dusty. That, that picture... It's still in the closet as well. Just haven't found a spot for it. But the picture of my wife, the portrait of my wife, that's hanging up for me to look at, for me to see. Now, I can look at that picture, and and is that my wife? No, of course not. I wouldn't look at that and say, there's Samantha. But I look at it, and what does it do? It reminds me of Samantha. It reminds me of my wife. It's a picture that points to her. And that that picture, it shows some of her qualities, right? It doesn't show all of them, but it shows some of them. It shows me her beauty. It shows me her face, right? So the picture is is special and dear to me because it portrays my wife. Today in 2 Peter, we're going to look at verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. And this really gives a picture or a portrait of Christ-likeness. That's really what we're going to be covering today is a portrait of Christ-likeness. What does Christ-likeness look like? If we were to have a picture of it on our wall, it wouldn't be a picture of a man, even though Christ did come as a man. It would be a picture really of these qualities right here. And these qualities specifically that flow out of the life of a heart of a believer. Now when we come to this passage and look at this picture of Christ's likeness, many, if we just came to this section right here, you might look at it and say, wait a minute, that might be legalistic or it's something that you know, I'm supposed to, to put on and portray. And oh no, that's not what Peter's getting at at all. He's saying all of these things flow out of a heart that already has faith 
that is already firmly resting in the promises of God, that already realizes, as we saw last week, has an equal standing when it comes to our salvation. So this portrait that we are to emulate is for believers. So if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, he's not your personal savior, this this passage is not going to make much sense because this is not something that unbelievers or those that don't have Christ within can emulate or actually truly show, even though the unsaved world may still show some of these qualities. It's not the real and from the source. So as we look at this portrait of Christ-likeness, we're going to ask two questions. What does it look like? What does Christ-likeness look like? And then the second question we're going to try to answer is, what are its effects? Or how does it affect me? What is, how does this portrait of Christ-likeness affect me? And it's going to give a negative and a positive one. So if you would, look down at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll read together verses 5 through 9, beginning now. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make ye that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So this portrait of Christ's likeness, we've already looked two weeks ago at really an overview of the book of Peter, and we, we looked at the main themes that Peter has throughout this book, and his really his main idea throughout the whole book, in his final words, this is at the end of Peter's life, is to grow in grace. And really that idea of growing in grace is growing changing to be more like the one who gives all grace and kindness, and that is Christ himself. And as he goes through this, he also brings up other themes, like the theme of reminding, that we need to be reminded over and over because we so easily forget, even in our Christian walk, things that should be familiar, that even are familiar, but we don't always practice, we don't always hold to, we don't always remind ourselves. So grow in grace Remind yourselves. He also says, beware, beware of false teachers. He also goes on then to say, look and expect for Christ's coming. And then he ends with an exhortation. So here, right at the beginning of the book, where we're still at, is still the same idea of this growing in grace. And growing in grace is rooted in our divine status that we looked at last week. That we have an equal standing. We have the same salvation, even as the Apostle Peter that God has given us then everything we need for life and godliness and that we are to cling to his precious promises. And so it's based on all of those things that we come to chapter or to verse 5 here and then he says and besides this. And what he means by this for this very reason because you have the same salvation that Peter has, because God has given you everything you need for salvation and sanctification, because God has given you very precious promises, because God has given you the knowledge of him, he's saying because of those very reasons, 
Then he turns and says, this is what you are to do as a believer. He says, so for this very reason, giving all diligence. What does it mean to give all diligence? Do you ever struggle with laziness? Oh no, not me, right? (laughs) Pastor Phil, I wouldn't want to admit to that. Does someone you know, maybe a child, ever struggle with laziness? And what is laziness? Does a lazy person know what they're supposed to do? Yeah, usually you have a long list of things you know to do, or maybe a very short list of things that you have been told to do. But what does the lazy person do? Do they think about the list? Yeah, they do for a little bit, and they say, I will do that. And the lazy person says, I will do that tomorrow, right? (laughs) And some of us, myself included, one thing that I have to continually come back to is we are master procrastinators, right? We're really good at delaying what we should be doing. And we can do this in multiple areas of life, right? Whether it's exercise and health or eating right or not spending too much time on social media or watching the news or getting so tied up in our hobbies or whatever else, our lawn. It it could be a myriad of things that we neglect what is most important. So what Peter is saying here is when it comes to looking at Christ and what he is like, this is what you should be giving all diligence or every effort to. In other words, if you were to have priorities in life, this list here should actually be at the top of those priorities. In other words, in all of your desires and things that you want to get done even this week and your to-do list and everything that you have to do at work or at home or projects, Peter is saying this this list, this portrait of Christ's likeness should be at the top. You should make every effort. It has the idea behind it of speed, of haste, of diligence, of earnestness. That you're actually putting effort into this. That you're actually seeking it out. What are things that you actually put effort in and seek out? It's those things that you're motivated, that you have interest in doing, right? So what excites you? Well, there's certain things that excite me, right? I like fixing things. That, that excites me. I'll put diligent effort into figuring out how to fix something because it brings me joy to finally have a resolution. After watching maybe hours of YouTube videos or spending hours on the floor of the garage with grease all over my hands or things, you know, disassembled all over the place, that's how I grew up. My mom was so gracious. She let me take apart lawnmower engines on the kitchen table. What mom does that? And then eventually... I started putting them back together, right? <laughs> Eventually. But I like, I like that. I'll, I'll put effort and diligence into figuring out how, you know, how something works and how I can fix it. Maybe you're like that, or maybe there's a different area of something that you really enjoy. Well, here it's saying there should be an earnest diligence towards this portrait of Christ's likeness. It has the idea here then of quickly obeying what the Lord reveals is his priority. In other words, not your priority, but the Lord's priority. This elevates the better over the good, the more important over the important. It does so with earnest swiftness, intensity. So Peter starts out saying, you need to have this driving intensity when it comes to these Christ-like characteristics and qualities. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 5, besides all this, giving all diligence, add to. Add to. Now, when we use that word add, we usually think that something is, is lacking and has that sense here. But he's really saying the idea of, of supplement or undergird. In other words, he's saying add to your faith. So he starts with faith, and that's already been the basis of verses 1 through 4. He says, you're already a believer. God's already given you everything you need for life and godliness. You already have promises that you have believed by faith. So he's saying, you are a believer. He's speaking to those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. He's saying, you already have that faith. And then under that whole umbrella of faith, add to So notice there's a very important distinction here. He's talking to those who have already been saved by faith. He's not talking to the unbeliever and saying you need faith plus all these other characteristics to be saved or to come to God. He's not saying that at all. He's very clear that you already have the faith that has has brought you to be a partaker of the divine nature. You already have that faith, and that faith is what saves, and it's not all of these other works. But then he comes to us as believers and says, since or because you have that faith, you need to give intense effort and diligence to supplement that faith, to undergird that faith with these character qualities. And these character qualities that we're going to look, look at are not superficial. Do you like superficial people? Do you like superficial uh, paint jobs? something that just covers up all the blemishes. No, these character qualities, when it's the portrait of Christ-likeness, are rooted in a heart of faith and flowing out of a heart of faith. So he's saying supplement richly your faith, richly support it. So this is not a legalistic code to follow, but it's rather features of a transformed heart that is already partaking in the divine nature. That's very important to understand. And as we go through this list, you'll see the list that he builds upon, but are also intertwined, because he lists these character qualities, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity, or love. So it's bookend, it starts with faith, and you notice how it ends with love, which Christ would say, and 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, is the greatest of all of these. So when it comes to this list, this portrait of Christ-likeness, I want to point out a few things before we get into this list, that Christ-likeness and growing in it is a sign of a mature, growing Christian. In other words, to exhibit these qualities, it's a sign, it's an outward indicator that, yes, you have faith within and that your heart has been transformed. This list isn't necessarily, necessarily complete. In other words, there could be other ideas that Paul or Peter or even Christ in other place would add, but it, it encompasses all of the Christian life. You also see here that it, there's an order to this list, right? It starts with faith, ends with love, yet all of these things are intertwined. In other words, you don't come to this list and say, well, I don't need to work on temperance today because I haven't mastered virtue, and that's later in the list. So once I get virtue down, then I'll be temperate and patient with others. It doesn't work that way. It's more the idea of a baby growing in the womb. I like that illustration because are all the parts there? Yes. But are there certain parts that need to grow faster and bigger before the other parts? Yeah. I mean, the brain and heart have to develop before the appendages will grow. Yet all of those parts are in place, right, and growing 
at the same time, yet some have a priority and are built upon the other. And that's the idea with this list too. It's like that baby in the womb. The other nice thing about this list, and I love, is that Christ-likeness, when it comes to Christ-likeness, it's specific. In other words, people say, be like Christ, and you say, well, what does that look like? And Peter here is saying, this is what it looks like. You can actually look at it and see, and it's very specific of what you need to be adding or supplementing to your faith. So it's not ambiguous, but it's, it's concrete. So now let's turn and look at the portrait What does it actually look like? And he starts off there in verse 3 with add to your faith virtue. This is the first one on the list after this idea of faith, which we've already discussed, of virtue. What is virtue? Well, if you look back at verse 3, he's already mentioned it at the end there, talking about through the knowledge of him, of Christ, that hath called us to glory and virtue. So we talked a little bit about this last week, what this, this word virtue means. It, back in the Bible times, it, it had the idea, just in the common culture, of moral excellence. Moral excellence. In other words, the Greeks would look at it and say, this person is, is excellent in their morals. They're complete in their morals. They, they are good in all aspects of life. If you really hone in on that word of moral excellence, it has the idea of, of an item or a person doing what they are designed to do. So when it comes to this idea of virtue or excellence, we could take any number of things. But think of a sword. I've mentioned this before. A sword, what is a sword supposed to do? Is it supposed to hammer in nails? No. Although you could probably use it for that if you really wanted to. As I say, anything can be a hammer if used hard enough or something. I don't know. But what is a sword supposed to do? A sword is supposed to cut, right? And so if you were to have an excellent sword, what does that mean? Now, some of you, I know right now, you're carrying pocket knives, right? So you have a miniature sword in your pocket. And some of you are very proud of that miniature sword. And some of you, I know, have spent a lot of money on that because the name that's on it or the type of metal that it's made out of and you could whip it right out right now, and you may not even have to spit on your arm, and you'd be shaving, you know, that quickly. Because it's sharp, and it's good to go, right? So what, what do you say? That's an excellent, that's a virtuous knife, because it does what it's supposed to do. It cuts well. So it comes to the question then, what are you and I designed to do? What are you and I designed to do? Well, if you turn back just a few pages to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter answers this question. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, where he says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, Here it is, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is your purpose as a believer? It's to show forth the praises of God. Simply put, it's to glorify God. It's to reflect who God is. In other words, your purpose is not you. My purpose is not me. My purpose is to reflect God. God. 
So if I'm going to be someone who is pursuing or supplementing or adding to my faith virtue or excellence, I'm going to be someone who is seeking and pursuing to reflect God in his moral character, in his moral attributes. So do you know what you were designed for? And are you living that? So that's moral excellence or virtue. He goes on then to say, add to your virtue, verse 3, back in 2 Peter 1, add to your virtue, knowledge. We've looked at this word a little bit in the previous couple of weeks. It's not just a knowing about, remember? It's an experiential knowledge. It's loving and living firsthand. It's kind of like the, the difference between dating and actually being married, right? When you date someone, you spend time with them, right? You go on dates together, and you get to know them. You enjoy one another's company, right? And so you know some things about them, you know some of their likes and dislikes, but did, it any of you, did any of you have this when you first got married? Were there anything about your spouse that surprised you? That you couldn't believe they did it that way? Do any of you have separate toothpaste bottles because the other person doesn't do it correctly, right? I mean, you could go through the whole list of things that you thought you knew this person but now you know this person, right? And some of you spend a long time with each other, and you actually still like each other, too. Praise the Lord. And, you, and, uh, and that just shows that, that it's not just a relationship of this surface knowledge. It's actually this deep knowledge. As you've spent time together, you've learned to love one another together. That's this idea here of adding to your faith knowledge. So it's, it's a firsthand experience. And, and it's, it affects then the way we approach God, our relationship to God. Sometimes we approach our relationship to God as, I know about God, I go to church on Sunday, and I'm good, right? It's just kind of a Sunday thing, Sunday to Sunday. But Peter's saying, no, that, that's not what it's supposed to be like. If, if you're going to know and experience God, this is a continual daily, day in, day out, night in, night out relationship that you're actually able to know and talk to God at all times. So going to church, as they say, doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in the garage makes you a car, right? You have to be transformed. And then if you're a Christian, it's not just something that you are on Sunday, if you're a car, you're going to be a car day in and day out, right? My dad would often say on radio days like this, it's days like these that I'm glad I'm not a tire. And my mom would groan at him. And, and the point was, you would never be a tire. But if you were, you wouldn't have any say over it anyways, right? You'd be a tire. Well, the thought here is, you're a Christian. You're a believer. And it's something that's day in and day out. You don't just put on on Sunday and take off on Monday if you're going to know and experience God at all times. So virtue, knowledge, and then he goes on, verse 6, add to knowledge, temperance. Temperance. When we think of temperance, we don't use that word as often. We sometimes use the word temper when it comes to, like, metals, you know, and what are we trying to do there? We're trying to harden a metal at a certain, you know, you have to heat it up to a certain degree and then plunge it in and then it, it kind of, you know, locks in the hardness in place. Something is tempered. But here the whole, the overarching meaning here is, is self-control. That'd be the idea behind it. 
that you have virtue, knowledge, and here's self-control. The idea here is true mastery from within, that you're actually able to, to have dominion over your own thoughts, desires, actions, and it's proceeding out from within one's own self. So it's not just an outward thing, it's actually very much an inward thing. I love what Paul wrote to Titus. In Titus chapter 2, Paul gives commands to Titus to teach to the church, and he, he sections out the church into different groups. He sections out older men and younger men, and older women and younger women. And he says to each of these groups, I want you to give certain instructions. And to the men, the older men, he gives a list, and one of them is to be sober, has the same idea here. To the younger men, he says but one thing. Because sometimes as younger men, that's all we can remember, right? He says but one thing, and that one thing is be sober-minded. In other words, of all the things that he would admonish a young man, and then he goes to young, or older women and younger women, and he gives a list there as well. But of all the things, he said to boil it down, especially for young men, it comes to this thing, but it's really something that we all have to work on, and it's commanded here, is self-control. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you control your own thoughts? Are you able to master your own desires? And even this, because some of us struggle even with our own actions, are you able to be in control even of your own actions? And I will tell you, even from personal experience, if you are depending on your own flesh, your own strength, your own willpower to accomplish this, it is well nigh impossible. In other words, to have control even over your own thoughts and desires, your own impulses, So what is this mastery of your own self going to take? You see how it's not superficial. It has to be rooted in the Holy Spirit of God working in your life. In other words, as Paul says in other passages, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He also includes this on the list of the fruits of the Spirit. Remember? In other words, Temperance, self-control, is only something that comes about as the Holy Spirit of God enables us to do it. And yet, Peter says, give every diligent intention and pursuit of having mastery of your own desires. Because that reflects well on the God and Christ who has saved you and is living within you. So virtue, knowledge, temperance, and then add to temperance, middle of verse 6, Patience. Patience. What is patience? Some people would say, well, patience is just simply not blowing my top, right? It's not letting off steam even though I want to. But if that were true, some of you, you can be angry in different ways though, right? In other words, I'm talking about the sinful kind of anger, and I'm speaking from experience. So you, you can be angry and blow your top, right, and be outrageous, and just, you know, go crazy. But some of you are good at being angry and just stewing over it, right? You just kind of let it bubble under the surface here. So what is patience then? Well, patience biblically is, is really the idea of remaining under pressure. Remaining under pressure or enduring 
The idea really is steadfastness, especially as God enables the believer to remain under the challenges that God allots in life. In other words, patience is not not getting mad. Patience more has the idea of a raging storm going on, and yet you are here on a, on a, on a solid rock, not a big rock, but a solid rock, and your feet are firmly planted there, and even though the storm is raging, you are able to endure because you are on that rock. And even though the storm keeps on raging, you can be steadfast in the midst of adversity and endure because that rock is Christ, because you're trusting and resting in him. And so to add patience, it's not just not doing or not being angry. Really the idea here is I'm submitting my will, my desires, my thoughts, my feelings to God's perfect and sovereign hand. His allotment in my life, I'm saying, God, even if it's good, even if it's bad, I'm going to endure under it by your grace and your strength. You see how it's more than just superficial? It's something that's very much tied to the heart. So then the question comes, are you able to endure the challenges God puts in your life. What did James and other writers say about trials? The working of your faith is actually supposed to produce something, right? So even though there's trials, even though there's hardships, this Christ-like character quality of patience is a realization that I can wait underneath pressure because I'm trusting in the God who holds it all and who knows tomorrow. So virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, and then he comes to godliness. Godliness was also mentioned earlier in this passage when he says in verse 3, according as his divine power hath given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So God has already promised that he's going to give us the power we need to be godly. Godly, what is godliness? If you're, if you're going to call someone godly, why would they be called that? Well, it's really a characteristic, one who reflects God, right, at its basic core. Do we like to give labels to certain groups of people? Yeah, I mean, we're really good at labeling people in different ways. And why do we label people? We, we label people based off of either what they look like or how they act or what desires they have, you know, what they like, whether it's a, a certain team there's certain names for fans of certain teams, right? Or people who like certain brands of trucks or clothing or whatever. We can label them and we say they are a follower of that thing. When it comes to godliness, the idea here is they are a follower in their inner self of who God is. And it's really an inner response to the things of God which shows itself in godly piety, or we'd say reverence. It's a godly heart response. It naturally expresses itself in reverence for God in what he calls sacred or worthy of veneration. In other words, you're going to worship or exalt the things that God exalts or says are good. In other words, you're going to agree with God in what he says is right and good. And that's him, right? That's our source of our worship. 
It also has effects in everyday life. That if you're a godly person, it's actually going to work itself out in the way you think about everyday things. Like, godliness is not just putting on the external characteristics of God. Godliness is saying, what does God think about this situation, about this thing, about this activity in my life, about my, my purposes and my desires? Godliness is going to reflect all of that and ask the question, what does God think? So if you're going to add godliness to your faith, you're going to be asking yourself this question. What does God think about this? What does God think about this desire? What does God think about this thought? What does God think about this motivation? What does God think about fill in the blank? And why are you asking that? You're not asking it out of you know, some sort of fear, of some sort of harsh God. Remember, this is rooted in a relationship, as we already talked about. So you're, you're asking it based off of, this is what God has done for me. And because he's done so much for me, I want to know what he thinks about every area of my life. So Peter's saying, diligently, intensely pursue godliness. You can give this, this example. So, some people in their dating relationship, right, they thought they knew what the other person liked, and it turned out they didn't like it. So, so for example, say that there's a guy and girl dating, and, and the guy, he decides to get the girl some roses, She's like, she'll love these roses. I want to get these roses to show my love and affection for her. So he buys her some roses and brings them to her, and she looks at it and has this look of disgust on her face. And she says, get those roses away from me. And the guy's like, what? I thought you loved me. Why don't you like these? She's like, I'm deathly allergic to roses. If I touch a rose, my nose will swell up, my eyes will become puffy, my cheeks will turn red, I might even have an, you know, an asthma or breathing attack. Get the roses away from me. And what does love say? Okay, she doesn't like roses. She doesn't like that. I got it. I won't do it. But what if the guy were to say, no, but I like roses. And, and like every girl in the world practically that I know likes roses. So I'm still going to get you roses. What would you call that guy? Well, you call him stupid. You might call him a few other things. But you'd say he is not respecting or revering or putting worth on what she puts worth on. And God is saying here, if you're going to be godly, it's not you coming to God and saying, God, this is what I think you like, and so you have to like it. Being godly is the idea of, God, what do you like? Letting him speak and saying, okay, I'm fine with that. I'm going to follow what you think. So sometimes it, it, it makes for hard decisions in our own personal lives of saying, Wait a minute, if this is what God says in his word, then I'm going to follow. So do you care about what God thinks? So then he goes on then, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness. And then verse 7, he says, and add to godliness, brotherly kindness. You might say, Pastor Phil, you don't know my brother. I understand. I have two brothers. I love them. We get along great. Did that always, was that always the case? No. The three of us shared a room. You know how it is if you have siblings, right? I don't know about you. I was stuck on the top bunk for all of my life. I tried to switch once with my brother. He fell out of the bed, woke everyone up. I didn't even wake up. Everyone else up. 
And I was on the top bunk for the rest of my life then too, right? No, I'm kidding. I'm not in the top bunk now. I'm married. We have our own bed. Okay. So, <laughs> but even through that, you, you can imagine all the different strife that would come through that. And that's not, that's not what Peter is getting at here. He's, he's getting at when it comes to a more mature relationship. And I, I know this isn't true in every, every situation, but I know for my brothers and I, as, as we've matured and as we've grown and as we have not had to share a room anymore, we have grown in our brotherly kindness to one another. And we actually, you know, we like each other. We get along, all of those good things. But what he's talking about here when it's brotherly kindness, it's, it's actually affection for the brethren that he's focused on. And so it's really an affection and a love for other believers. So he's focusing on the church body, the church family together, and says, this is something that should be on full display that you should pursue after, and that's affection and love and kindness for one another. It has the idea of of sticking up for one another because you're family. Some of you know how that is, right? On the playground, if someone was picking on your sibling, who are you going to side with? Well, I understand it may be different. But no, you're, you're going to side with your brother, your sister, because they're family. You're going you're gonna to stick up for your family because you care about them. But brotherly kindness also has the idea of pursuing reconciliation. In other words, you're not going to let a break or a bump in the relationship be the end all. Remember, this is talking specifically about the body, the, the believers together here. Do you ever get mad or upset at one another? Don't, don't nod your heads. It's okay. You don't have to do it here. Let me ask it another way. Does anyone in this room ever annoy you? Pastor Phil, you shouldn't be asking those questions from the pulpit, right? But let's be real. Does, does that ever happen? And, and, and what is the response? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever sinned against someone in this room, maybe even someone sitting right next to you. And what is Peter here calling for? He's calling for brotherly love. Yes, love can cover a multitude of sins, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's annoyance. You can brush it off, but it's also calling for restoration here, too. That if there's brotherly kindness and affection that you're going to pursue, we're going to pursue together to be in right relationship, right fellowship with one another. Because that's reflecting the God who saved us from our sin. I always think of Colossians 2.13 and Colossians 3.13. Two easy verses kind of to remember. Colossians 2.13, Colossians 3.13. That says we have to forget the, the basic idea is we, we, we need to forgive one another because Christ has forgiven us. In other words, forgiveness is not rooted in us or the other person. Forgiveness is rooted in Christ because he has forgiven us of our sin. So brotherly kindness is this this affection for one another, for fellow believers, sticking up for one another, forgiving one another, learning to live in harmony and community with one another. So here's the question. Are you caring for the needs around you? Sometimes that's hard to ask because you're like, there's so many needs. I get that. There's a lot of needs. So the expectation here is not for you to meet everyone's needs, not for me to meet everyone's needs. That's impossible, right? But the expectation here is to be aware and alert and looking out and trying to at least meet some needs, to be reaching out as you can. So add to your godliness, brotherly kindness. And then he finishes, 
here in the end of verse 7, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Charity is a word that is off talk in the Bible, and you've heard it before, this idea of agape, love, love for one another. This charity, it focuses on preferences of others or their need. Likewise, the verb form means to prefer someone else. It, it has that idea. So you're, it's not you're focusing on preferences, but you're preferring someone else. And what does that mean? It means you're putting someone else before you. And this, this word agape, this word love, this word charity, broadens the whole scope out. It's no longer just brotherly kindness, but this is the same word like in John, for God so loved the world, right? It broadens out to all people. So, and then it also refers specifically, most often, to divine love. In other words, this is the love that is rooted and sourced in God's character. So if you're going to have charity, if you're going to have love, this is actually towards all people, and it's the same type of love that God has towards all people. What kind of love does God have towards all people? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it goes through that whole list and saying the greatest of all of these is love. In other words, you can have great talents, you can have great musical abilities, you can do signs and wonders, even miracles. You could do all of those things, but, but love is the greatest. In other words, have you ever wanted to be a superhero? I don't know who, maybe you have a favorite superhero. They can do so many amazing things, right? Peter's saying, let's be realistic. I want you to be a superhero in this sense. I just want you to have God's love flowing out of your life. I just want you to have God's love, charity on full display for all to see. I just want you, in other words, we often say, oh, you know, that person's a super, hum, or super Christian or something. There's no such thing as a super Christian unless you would say it this way. It's, it's someone who has supernatural empowerment. In that case, being a super Christian is open to all who believe. Because Christ is within you and he is giving you the power then to show this love, his love, toward all people. So it's focused on the state of all people, believers or not. So as you look at this portrait of Christ-likeness, your virtue, your knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, how are you doing? How are you doing? <laughs> That's a pretty hard-hitting question. How am I doing? Is there room for growth? And I would say absolutely in my own life, absolutely. But here's the encouragement. Verse 3, God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. To grow, to pursue in these areas, God has already given you everything you need. So that's the portrait. That's what it looks like what are its effects? We'll close with verses 8 and 9, where he gives both the positive and the negative. He's saying, if you have these qualities, here's what it does for you. If you don't have these qualities, here's the reason why. In other words, he gives both the encouragement to keep going, to keep growing, but he also gives the warning light on the dashboard saying, check engine light is on, you need to scan the codes and see what the problem is. So verse 8 
Peter goes on to say, for if these things, this whole list, be in you and abound. Notice he uses two ideas here. It's not that it's just in you, but that it's abounding. It has the idea of super quantities. It's overflowing, overabounding within you. He says, if they're in you and then they abound, they abound. Here's the promise. They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. To me, this is an amazing, sweet, and precious promise. Do you want to be fruitful in your Christian walk, in your Christian life? Do do you want to go forward for God? Don't you want God to do great things in and through you? And Peter is saying here, on the authority of God's word, it's not some prosperity gospel preacher, this is saying if, if you have these things in you, you will not be barren, you will not be unfruitful for God. They actually make you that you shall neither be barren or unfruitful. This idea of make is the idea of set in place. It's, it's your status again, as we talked about last week. You have the authority or the power to do it. In, in other words, God has put you in a place that if you're pursuing these things, it's going to make it so that you won't be barren and unfruitful. And this idea of barren or unfruitful, they're very similar words, but they have the idea of idleness or unprofitableness or profitless. What do you call a business that is unprofitable? Not, not good, right? Although some tried to live that way. What do you call a business that is profitless? You call them trying to avoid taxes, right? Something like that. I know it, it's something that is not going to continue. You have to make profit here. And so the promise here is that you're going to get a return on your investment. In other words, if you invest and pursue after this portrait of Christ's likeness, there's going to be return on it. It's going to cause fruit and growth in your life. In what way? Well, he finishes verse 8 with this. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the actual knowing and experiencing Jesus, that if you're pursuing what Jesus looks like, you're actually going to know and experience him in a deeper and greater way. So if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing, precious promise. But then he turns or flips the coin over and says, but if you're lacking these things, here's the issue, here's the problem. Look at verse 9. He says, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. What's he talking about? He that lacketh these things, he that lacketh is simply talking about it's not present in your life. In other words, you're not seeing this, these things growing in your life. You're lacking them. So if you're lacking these things, the idea of virtue, godliness, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, love, what's the problem? Well, the problem, and I believe he's speaking to believers here, is that you're blind. He uses this, this phrase, you're blind and cannot see a sh- afar off. The idea here is you're short-sighted. You're short-sighted. What does it mean to be short-sighted? It means you can't see out there. You're only looking at what's right here. The idea is you're too temporally focused. You haven't looked up. You haven't seen ahead to what God is doing and what God is going to do. It almost has the idea of an eternal focus here. You're not living for eternity. You're living for just the here and now. You're blind. You're short-sighted. And you've forgotten something. You ever forget your glasses? If you're short-sighted, not a good thing, right? Especially when driving. 
Here you've forgotten something even more important. And remember how one of his themes, Peter's themes throughout the book, is to remind us, to remind us. Well, here's the opposite. You've forgotten something, and what have you forgotten? You need to keep on remembering this, that you have been purged from your old sins. So what is this all rooted in? It's rooted in the sweet truth of the gospel, that all who will believe Christ offers forgiveness. This idea of being purged from your old sins, it's, it's purification, it's cleansing, it's the elimination of impurities. Peter's saying, you have been cleansed, you have been washed. And if you're living in a way that doesn't show these qualities of Christ's likeness, it's because you've actually forgot what God has done for you. And so if the warning light is on in your heart right now, in your head, and you say, wait a minute, things aren't adding up, I, I'm, it's not necessarily that you aren't saved, it's maybe you've just forgotten the great salvation God has given to you. You just are not reminding yourself of the simple, sweet truth of the gospel, what God has done for you. So the call is then, look up, see Christ, see what he's done for you. And that will motivate you to live out these qualities. So the portrait of Christ's likeness. What does it look like? We've looked at that list. What are its effects? It actually promises fruit in your life. So do you want to be fruitful? Do you want to live for God? Do you want to pursue in these? God has already given you everything you need now the, the encouragement, the admonishment is, as a believer, give all diligence to look like Christ. Let's pray and ask God to give us the grace for that.